Well, as you uh, finish up your dinner, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, help us transition. My name is Scott McDowell. I'm the seventh president of Lubbock Christian University. We are glad to host you on campus this evening for the 11th annual Lanier Lecture. And we express gratitude to Mark and Becky Lanier for their uh, funding of this lecture over the years. They've just done a fantastic job, been very generous to us. Uh, Mark is, uh, as you well know, a world-renowned uh, a lawyer, but he is really passionate about his faith and he's passionate about uh, scholarship. And so he has been a delight. Uh, I see my friend Marvin Crossnow out here. We were talking a little bit, having a little fun talking about racquetball. Uh, Mark, Mark is a big racquetball player. He has a racquetball court in his house. And uh, it's kind of like, uh, I talked a lot of trash to get an invitation to go play racquetball with him. <laughs> And the lesson learned is never play against a guy that has his own racquetball court. <laughs> but he's very generous in a lot of ways, and we're so thrilled uh, for Mark and Be Becky's uh, generosity making this evening possible. We've got special guest Charles Mickey, who is the Director Emeritus of the Lanier Library. He has got some Lubbock roots and has been uh, part of this in the past. His d wife Kay is with him. Would you wave at him, folks, there? Thank you. Let's recognize them. And Charles has coordinated our speaker for this evening, and uh, in a moment, uh, Dr. Jeff Carey will introduce her. One of the things that really thrilled me when I got into this role was to be able to participate in an evening like this and to see the level of dialogue and discourse that happens on our campus. It's just a magnificent thing. You're going to get a taste of that in just a moment. Uh, genuine university dialogue. But in the, the first evening, we had uh, Mark Lanier and Charles and a couple of other guys from the Lanier Library here. And one of the most enjoyable parts of that evening was me getting to spend time with them and see their love for each other and the community that they have created within that uh, Lanier Theological Library family. And uh, Charles, it's winsome and it is a testimony to the goodness of God. So we're grateful for you and all the good work that you all do and for the Lanier's and uh, Dr. Carey will now come and introduce our uh, speaker for the evening. All right, good evening. I didn't introduce myself before. I think there's some people in the corner I can't see. I'm sorry. My name is Jeff Carey. I serve as the Dean of the College of Biblical Studies, and it is always the College of Biblical Studies honor to get to um, host these lectures here. So we're very glad you're here. And I'm super delighted to introduce our guest to you. This is Dr. Sharon Derricks. Now, you can see her name at the bottom of the screen over there. It is D-I-R-C-K-X. Now, how do you say this? So all summer when we were interacting in my mind, I was saying Dirks. And so the first thing I did was ask her, how do you say this? And she said, Derricks, tonight, I was asking her where that comes from. Her husband comes from Danish roots. Dutch. Dutch, sorry. Dutch roots. And there is a day in um, where they're from where they have Derek's Day. That's pretty amazing. So we're happy to have her here with us. Um, we're going to have a much fuller introduction of Dr. Derek's at the evening lecture. 
I'm just going to tell you enough to set the table for our conversation. She began as a scientist. She got a biochemistry degree and then a PhD in brain imaging from Cambridge. Maybe you've heard of it. After practicing in that field for 11 years and doing seven years of postdoc research, she went to Oxford to receive training in Christian apologetics. And so for the, for the last 15 years, she's been working at this intersection of science and Christian faith. She writes books, she researches, she's, she's on the road all of the time speaking. So it's an honor for, her, uh, honor for us to have her here. On a personal note, what I want to share with you is that the brief amount of time that I've been able to spend with her, what I've seen is a person of just beautiful humility, even though she has really impressive academic credentials. I watched that today in chapel as she spoke about the hope that we have in Christ. It was a beautiful message of the gospel. I watched her as she dealt with students this afternoon in a student lecture and fielded their questions, how she handled some potentially sensitive questions with such care and grace. So I want to not only recommend her to you as a scholar, but as a, just a fine human being. So we're honored to have you here. What we're going to do for just a few moments is have a very warm and friendly conversation. This isn't an academic gotcha session. So we're going to start with something really easy. I would like, uh, Dr. Dirks, for you to think of the most controversial topic that you can think of and tell us what you think about that. I'm going to stop you before you get going. Tell us something. Just tell us who you are. Where do you live? Tell us about your family, what some of your hobbies are, and what you're doing these days. Yeah, thank you. Um, is it, shall I call you Jeff or Dr. Yes, Kerry? Jeff. Jeff. Um, thank you, Jeff. And it's a, a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here, actually, and to spend this evening with, um, with you. Thank you for coming. And um, I, so I um, live in Oxford. I've lived there for the last 18 years. My husband and I have lived there for 18 years, and we've had two children there. Uh, we have a daughter, Abby, who is 15, and a son, Ethan, who is 13. Um, as I was listening to you, Jeff, I, I remembered that, um, so my husband and I, we met in a brain imaging lab, so how romantic is that? Um, and I remember one of the first things I said to Conrad when I saw his name, because the lab kind of had all the members of the faculty and you know, students' names and photos on the wall, and I looked as there are not enough vowels in your last name. Um, little, little did I know that I would end up um, inheriting it myself. Anyway, um, so we live in Oxford with our two children. We've lived there for, for 18 years. And, yeah, we, we, love, we love being there. So you just kind of let that roll <coughs> off. We live in Oxford. What's it like living in Oxford? Yeah. Um, it's it's wonderful. I mean, um, we don't live in the old part. Don't don't get the wrong impression. But um, we can I can cycle into the kind of all the sites that you would that perhaps some of you have seen uh, in about 15 minutes on my bike. And it, it is quite normal to cycle around. There's lots of lots of people with very big brains not wearing cycle helmets. <laughs> um, that doesn't really make any sense. But um, 
Yeah, so people cycle around a lot. There's this incredible architecture around there. Obviously, it's a very expensive place to live, so, you know, uh, not everything is great. But uh, it's it's a wonderful place to, to raise children. There's lots going on. And and I, I used to work at Oka there as well. So, the, you know, there's a lot going on in apologetics and... Uh, Christian theology is very rich in Oxford. It's got this extraordinary history of, um, you know, the um, martyrs uh, in the time of Reformation that were burnt at the stake on this ma major street in the centre of Oxford. So there's such a rich Christian heritage. So you told me last night, we're going off script here a little bit, you told me you grew up in Durham. Yes. Which is another beautiful place. Rodney Thomas, where are you? <coughs> This fellow over here, he went to the University of Durham. Uh, oh, okay. And so uh, he was telling me just this evening how beautiful Durham is as well. So you, you've been blessed to live in some really wonderful places. Yes, I have, yeah. yes. All right, let's get down to uh, something that more, may more re uh, relate to why you're here. I'm going to ask you these as we agreed on them, so there's okay. no curveballs okay. here. You can ask me other things. I really don't mind. Well, I tried starting with one, and you weren't very responsive to that. <laughs> well, I can tell you a bit more about Durham. I mean, it's got... Um, yeah, it's got a. If have have any has anyone been to Durham in the UK? Well, I highly recommend it. If you get as far as Oxford, it's worth jumping on a train and going to Durham as well. The cathedral is 900 years old, and um, Saint Cuthbert was buried there. Um, and kind of one of the people that brought the gospel to the British Isles. Um, yeah, again, a rich a rich Christian heritage there and thinking about kind of Celtic Christianity and how that kind of kind of meshed with Roman Christianity and the impact in Britain. So yeah, Durham is beautiful. So what drew you to the study, uh, to study and work in the sciences and how did you end up in Christian apologetics after that? Thank you. Yeah, so um, my journey in the sciences started probably as a teenager. Um, I uh, I remember kind of as I was getting into high school and the amount of homework started to increase. I loved my science and maths homework. I always did that first. I got quite stressed about English essays and anything that required ambiguity. And yeah, I just, I wasn't so into that. And and so, and I remember a friend saying, oh yeah, I, I think I'm going to, would like to do a PhD. And I was thinking, well, that sounds quite cool. And I'd, maybe I'd quite like to do that as well, you know, drill down into a particular area and really get to grips with it. And that was at about the age of 14. So I guess from quite early on, I knew that I was a scientist and from in my kind of later school years when you specialize for um, A-levels and A-levels get you into university. I, I was doing biology, chemistry and maths and yeah, I just, um, I loved the, the, the idea of being able to study the natural world. At that point, I wasn't a Christian. Uh, my A-level biology teacher handed me a book by Richard Dawkins and so I was reading The Selfish Gene just a few years after it had come out about how we are essentially gene machines and material beings and that there isn't terribly much more to it than that. And I realized that over time I absorbed um, a belief system, you know, th kind of subconsciously because nobody wakes up one day and decides they're going to decide to be an, an agnostic or an atheist. Or you kind of gradually absorb it from media, from books, from magazines, from radio, from TV. And that was what happened to me on that journey. And so I arrived at Bristol 
uh, agnostic and assuming that science and God were in conflict because I was reading from brilliant scientists who didn't believe in God. And so, yeah, <clears throat> does that, that doesn't answer your question, does it? It does. It answers the first part. I, okay. I am con confused, though, that you didn't like ambiguity. So how did you get to Christian apologetics, of all things? <laughs> well, so the long story short, I became a Christian uh, at university studying biochemistry. Um, but, uh, and an interesting is, um, part the, uh, a key part to my journey was that I had lots of questions and I began to ask them, starting from week one uh, as a student, and I began to receive credible answers that made sense to me. And so I spent the next year and a half grilling more Christians and asking questions. And it's really important to do that. And, um, you know, if something is true, then we can ask the very hardest questions that we have. It's not going to collapse it's going to be able to hold the weight. And that was what was shown to be true of Christianity. Uh, you know, we, don't, we can't answer all of our questions, but we can ask the, the very hardest questions that we have, and we shouldn't be afraid of doing that. Because if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, he can hold the weight of the questions that we have. And so really important for me, I believe really important for young people today to have a place to ask their questions and for that, play, for it to be okay in the church to do that as well. And, um, still not answering your questions. I'm going to get to apologetics. So um, Christian apologetics was something that came in, well, apart from my journey to faith, as, as I became a Christian and was discipled and um, moved, into, uh, moved to the States, actually, to take up a postdoc, I, I, am, I met um, somebody who was an extraordinary evangelist, uh, and was leading people to Christ kind of just as a matter of course as part of her life through these investigator Bible studies, six-week uh, studies that she would do with people. And I really was drawn to this. I really um, just, uh, and at the same time, in my brain imaging lab in uh, Milwaukee at the Medical College of Wisconsin, I was being, I was having all kinds of opportunities to discuss the Christian faith help people with their questions, and I even did some of these investigator Bible studies. So that began to stir in me, maybe there's more here than just the fact that I'm a scientist. Um, and that sent me kind of looking, um, we were feeling called back to the UK, so I was thinking, what next? And these same friends told us about what has become OCA, the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. And I essentially went there to study and that was the beginning of the pivot for me from being a full-time scientist to being an apologist. So that was in 2004. And then I, over the course of the next five years, kind of shifted to being kind of a full-time apologist. Yeah. Again, off script a little <coughs> bit. Everyone, everyone who comes to faith has different reasons for doing so. Yeah. And there's usually more than one. There's a, a host of them. Yeah. What were a couple of the things that for you yes. were centrally significant yes. to embracing Christian faith? Well, again, this area of apologetics, so the science and God question was, was really instrumental for me because I was a scientist, I loved science, and I had assumed they were in conflict. Um, and so for someone to say to me, no, they're not, uh, and you can do both, that was a game changer. It, whole, it opened up a whole new horizon for me. Um, 
And then the other, the other one, um, which ties into a later question, um, was that I read a book that the name of which I can't even remember anymore. But it was, uh, it was before I knew about things like Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Um, it was talking about the reliability of the Bible and the historicity of the manuscripts. And I remember thinking, you know, reading this and thinking, why didn't someone tell me this earlier? So there were these matters of, of the kind of intellectual questions and the fact that there were credible answers to show that I could trust the Bible, I could trust my love of science, it wasn't in conflict. And so those all pointed to a credible faith. And But there were also moments where uh, uh, it was really engaging on a, a whole different level. So I was involved in music at the time. I played in an orchestra. And my friends invited me along to a carol service. I don't know if you know, in the UK, we at Christmas time, we have these extra church services with loads of singing of Christmas carols. And they're an amazing opportunity because culturally, people that don't go to church still come to these. And I was one of those. As a student, I went with my friends. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm very used to being moved by music. But there's something more happening here. And of course, I didn't know it at the time, but I was kind of getting a taste of the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. And, and so I would say there were matters of the head and the heart that were important in my journey to faith. Thank you for sharing that. <clears throat> How do you account for the current tensions that we're experiencing, perhaps especially in the Western world, but really globally, the current tensions between science and faith? Yeah, um, I think that um, I think there are a number of different factors. One is that <clears throat> there are a number of very vocal naturalists or atheists who are brilliant scientists, and we're not going to detract from that. And obviously, um, you know, they have um, said, you know, things and uh, written things in the academy that over time filter down into popular level culture and we don't need to go further than Barnes and Noble to pick up a book in the science section and of course the backdrop, the presumed backdrop is naturalism or atheism and that is that is what, what we're working with and I think, you know, I think that is that is a big part of it. There are all kinds of kind of faulty dilemmas that this whole conversation is littered with. One is that I can either be a thinker or a person of faith because somewhere along the line they've, they've got the message that uh, faith is blind, faith does not require you to think, uh, faith doesn't require you to evaluate anything. But of course, if we take a look at the life of Jesus in the New Testament, we see that when people put their faith in him, it wasn't blind. It was actually on the basis of the evidence. Here was a man who lived like no one else, who treated people with dignity, who brought people back from the margins, who had spoke with extraordinary authority, who never, um, whose followers never had anything bad to say about him in three years of close contact and who uh, had these a, a capacity to heal people and raise them from the dead. It was on the basis of all of that evidence that when Jesus said, come follow me, they leave their nets and follow him or they leave their tax booth and follow him. Faith is not blind. And so somehow people have got the idea that to be a, if I want to be a thinker, I need to stay well away from the Christian faith. It's the opposite. And I will say later, the very fact that you can think 
the most persuasive reason for that is because God exists, because God is a thinker and he has a mind. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that this idea that faith is irrational, but science is rational and fact-based. And of course, that's not the whole case either. Science doesn't offer infallible proof. Um, it offers you levels of certainty. You know, anyone here that's in the sciences will know that when you conduct a study and you write it up, you're not saying we have proven conclusively that. You're actually saying this data suggests and you're offering the best explanation you have based on the current data and technology. And, and so there is actually uh, even a level of, of faith involved in the scientific method, faith that there's order in nature and that we can think rationally. Um, yeah, but somehow, for, for these reasons, people have got the impression that science and belief in God are incompatible, it, but it's not the case. This is one of the reasons we have students at LCU take a course in the Christian heritage, among many reasons that we do it. One is we want them to know that over the centuries there is a rich intellectual tradition and that faith is not blind right. and they don't stand alone yes. in this world, that they're not reduced just to an internal experience that yes. they're having. This turns out to be... Um, tremendously encouraging yes. to a number of our students. And there are some historical situations that's, you know, really helpful for students to know about, things like, you know, the Galileo debate and um, that people assume is kind of, uh, you know, Galileo the scientist against the church and the two are in conflict. Actually, Galileo was a man of faith and the, that the church was believing the secular perspective of the day. But Galileo saw his faith as being integral in, in his uh, discoveries in science, you know, all kinds of historical things and how they're reported on today, how they're written about. There, there have been some key works that have contributed to the conflict thesis, and it's helpful for us to unpick those. So as you look into your crystal ball, your scientific crystal ball, where do you see this tension going in the near future this conflict between, supposed conflict between mm -hmm. science and faith, and as you project further out, where do you see this going in the distant future? Yeah, thank you. Well, I think um, the conversation around artificial intelligence is not going away anytime soon. Um, I recommend my um, colleague, um, Professor John Lennox's book, 2084, which is out with Zondervan, um, which is a really great kind of just analysis of, of where we're at with artificial intelligence and I suppose the whole conversation around what people believe will one day be possible and will there one day be, you know, I'll say this in the talk later, conscious androids, you know, walking the streets of Lubbock or is that more of a philosophical question rather than something that the data can, can show us? So AI would, would be one um, and another would be I think there's, you know, there's this in interesting area uh, known as neurotheology, where neuroscience intersects theological belief, religious belief, and there may be kind of more to come in that area as well. Good, thank you. What part of your work, either as a scientist or an apologist, has brought you the most satisfaction? Yeah, thank you for, for that. You know... Um, my PhD was really hard, and I almost gave up many times. 
Um, but coming to the coming to the realization that the creator of the universe cares about me sitting typing numbers into this Excel spreadsheet. Um, you know, Psalm 8, you know, talks about um, uh, he's made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. What is mankind that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You know, just, I think, um, I know it's not quite, maybe not necessarily the answer that I was even thinking of giving earlier, but just the fact that I can study these things and go about my daily life knowing that the creator of the cosmos cares and sees the details that that was uh, uh very very satisfying actually and uh, and actually for the christian I, i've heard people even say that god has enabled them to uncover areas he has actually blessed their research and has enabled them i i feel like he did do that for me i actually even and this is highly unusual and it's never happened since but in this difficult time of my PhD, I had a dream about a graph <clears throat> with some data points on it. And I did actually end up collecting a, a graph like that. And that was really interesting to me that, that, you know, Galileo talked about the scientist thinking God's thoughts after him. And, you know, what, what a privilege to, to be able to do that. As an apologist evangelist, it's a, a real, it's such a privilege to see the penny drop for somebody or to see someone further away from God move a bit closer to have had one roadblock cleared out of the way. You know, I often think of apologetics as it's giving reasons, you know, from the verse in First uh, Peter, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And the Greek word for answer is apologia. And it's like clearing away roadblocks so that people can see Jesus. And just that privilege of seeing one more roadblock be cleared or even see someone see Jesus and go, oh, really, that's, that's what it's about. Um, that, obviously, there's no, no greater privilege than, than doing that. We may have to agree to disagree about Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> I, I think they're from the devil. <laughs> Every time I have to open one, I die a little bit inside. We can pray for you in this. And I sure don't want to have dreams about graphs. So, I didn't ask for it. Yeah. Well, we have to wonder whether God gave it to you or not. Yes, yes. Tell us about two or three books that have been especially important for your faith formation. Thank you. Yes. You know, I was thinking about this and think, trying to think, are there any kind of really, really kind of significant, meaty, like academic books? And I actually, but I actually, the two that I want to share with you, the first one I've already shared, it's this book, I can't even remember the title, but it dismantled the assumption that I had that the Bible couldn't be trusted. And uh, it was offering apologetics, you know, for like the number of manuscripts, the distance of time from the, the oldest manuscript that we have from the events themselves and how, 
yes, if you want to throw out um, the New Testament as being unreliable, you have to throw out every historical document that there is. And that blew me away. It just blew me away. I'd never read anything like that. I'd never heard anyone say anything like that. And I know that that kind of material is available in all kinds of books today. The second book that was really important for me, I believe, was a book by Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace? Because, you know, there's always more to discover. Um, the gospel is this beautiful diamond with so many different edges and um, you shine the light on one angle and you see it from, from that perspective and then you shine it from another and you see it from another perspective. And I just, I read this book about grace and just extravagant generosity and just how um, Philip managed to do that through stories and, and beauty. And, and it just opened my eyes to grace. You know, and I think, uh, I can't remember who it was that said it, but it's like, if you start to ask the question, is it really that good? Then you're close to the kingdom, you're close to the gospel. And I think that book helped me to grasp grace because in our natural bent, we become legalists, right? We feel like I, I can earn this. I've got the brownie points. I'm doing this and God ought to reward me. It's like God loves us. God loves me regardless, despite my efforts. And that, that was ex extraordinary to discover. And um, that, that's the foundation of when I think of God, I think... Yeah, sacrificial love and extraordinary generosity to pour out <clears throat> the riches of heaven while we were still sinners, while we were walking away, while we want nothing to do with him. Christ died for us. Yeah, that, that yeah. You know, what's really <clears throat> inspiring is those of us who are not scientists sometimes work with a stereotype that scientists are just data crunchers, you know, at the computer punching. <laughs> Excel spreadsheets, it, yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> it is, it's inspiring to hear Christian scientists talk about faith in the terms that you do. I wish you could have heard her talk to our students. That grace just came out as she looked at them and said so persuasively, God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. Grace just emanates from you. And it's a beautiful thing to see how you've wedded that to science. So thank you for being here and sitting for this conversation. I'm going to invite her to go ahead and exit. So would you help me thank her for the conversation? Thank you. Thanks for listening to LCU's podcast. For more content like this, go to lcu.edu.